0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of Obscurity Knocks, where we trawl through back catalogs in search of the most obscure credits we can find in the hopes of hearing stories that no one else has heard, mostly because no one else would care enough to ask about these things. So, you're welcome. Today's guest is a man whose list of credits is far too long to list here, but he has a history of making an impression just about every time he turns up in TV and on film, whether it's playing the William Tell overture by tapping on his throat in Animal House, intimidating the hell out of you in The Insider, or trying to get rich quick and get in trouble even quicker on MacGyver. You can currently catch him in theaters in Ride Along 2, in which he reprised his role as Lieutenant Brooks. And he is in the midst of filming the final season, unfortunately, of Rizzoli and Isles. Uh, Our guest today, Mr. Bruce McGill.
1: Good morning, Will. Good morning, Will
0: listeners. It is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, But we wanted to uh, reiterate the rules of the game, so to speak. Uh, Bruce has three virtual cards he can play. Uh, The first is the just say no card, which means that I can mention a project, and he can just say no, and that's the end of it, and he doesn't have to worry about me doing a follow-up question because I'm not allowed to. The second one is the one-liner card. Uh, He still has to acknowledge the reason why he doesn't particularly want to go into detail about it, but that's all he has to do, just the one-sentence explanation. That's it. No follow-ups from me again. Uh, The last one is the switcher card, and that gives him the opportunity to switch out a project in favor of one that is equally obscure, maybe because it has a better story, or maybe just because he doesn't want to talk about the original project. Either way, uh, he still has to talk about something. Uh, So that's it, and uh, I guess to kick things off, uh, the first one is uh, a TV project, uh, Semi-Tough, which is an adaptation of the Burt Reynolds film. Uh, which came on the heels of you having done a TV adaptation of Animal House called Delta House. Uh, but semi-tough, I guess, that came about, uh, just standard audition process?
1: Well yes. I was a young and hungry actor then, and I you know audition for anybody that would let me if they had a paying job. I, I, I still do. I'm still very happy to audition if it's something I want. But that was also, I, I knew the movie, and uh, I thought it was pretty cool that someone was interested in me perhaps taking over a role that Burt Reynolds, who was been in, and, real you know, top-mots off the straw and features. And I thought, that's pretty cool if they think I can fill Burt Reynolds' cleats. So uh, I went happily to that, and uh, it was a very new experience to me, uh, you know, mostly in the theater. And this was a sitcom, which is multi-camera. And it's sort of two jokes a page, and kind of I found it kind of forced. And the guys that everybody that likes for the show, they give, they give them the producer credit. They're writers, and every time a the joke they wrote came up in the rehearsals, they would do this really obnoxious, false horse lap I just found uh, you know, I just thought it was, like, bad. <laughs> but, I mean, and I, they used to keep me after class because they thought I had a bad attitude. And I did have a bad attitude, looking back on it. I didn't really understand the animal. And it's not really film, and it's not really live theater. It's sort of this hybrid. And it's, uh, you know, the, in a half-hour comedy with commercials taking about eight minutes up, you've only got about 22 or 23 minutes. Uh, And so it had to be punched up and fast and false. And this, you know, from a guy that was coming out of the theater and Stanislavski and behavioral realism and all that sort of stuff, or the very disciplined playing of Shakespeare in the classics. I just thought this was like
0: cheesy. So (laughs) I got in trouble at (laughs) all. But you did get to work with uh, David Hasselhoff.
1: I did work with the Hoff. Hoff, uh, he was playing the shake killer part which was played by chris christopherson football quarterback and david bless his heart had little thin legs and they wouldn't even fill up his football pants he was tall enough to be a quarterback but we had a lot of real football players as uh you know secondary characters and background in the show and those guys had been giving each other a hard time since they were kids so they were really merciless with David old bird legs they call him and he would just <laughs> get so upset and bella smith was a Great big six foot eight defensive you know, lineman and really you know top pro at the time, and he had just started doing these light beer commercials for Miller. So he was, they thought okay he's an actor, and he would just be oh oh listen man look man, you can't play look at those no legs you can't play no football legs like that you got a <laughs> bird leg a chicken leg, and David would get so say, he's got to make him stop make him stop. I <laughs> don't think he cried but it was you know it was pretty sad. <laughs> and me, I'm sitting over there, uh, you know, I, I was uh, I was happy about the job because, A, they were paying me, and B, I got to know Bubba Smith, who I'd been a fan of as a football fan, and uh, he's a fellow Texan, and a, such a really good guy. I, I, uh, I became his translator when the, when the uh, directors would talk to him in, in sitcom language, directing him to do things, which they always overcomplicated, and they would speak a long paragraph and he didn't understand it, and I just said, Oh, Bubba, all they want you to do is say your line before you walk over to your locker instead of saying it while you're walking. <laughs> that's what they said. I said, Yeah, that's it. So from then on, for the rest of the series, and I think we did 13, um, he, they would start to give him some elaborate direction like that with uh, you know, emotional content and all sorts of weird stuff that's frankly useless to even a trained actor. <laughs> But he would say, uh-uh-uh, and hold up his giant hand and say, talk to my man, talk to Bruce,
0: because
1: I was his man. <laughs> so they always gave the direction to me, and I would translate it into something very simple that, uh, that he understood And would just execute, because he didn't care about the emotional content of the character. He was, you know, they asked him to do it, and he was doing
0: it. <laughs> now, you said being uh, it was an adaptation of the uh, the original film, did you find any issue with the the, the primetime sensibilities versus the theatrical, a love the issue you had with uh, Delta House?
1: Um, not so much this one because it was, uh, you know, we could be a little racier, uh, but uh, the movie Semi-Tough was never as, you know, racy as Animal House, the movie, especially for the time, you know, when it came out in 1978, uh, people had not seen a Coney Island wife tamer whipped out on, on the screen. <laughs> so Animal House had uh, had a little, it was a little edgier, as they say now. And then semi tough, And semi tough was pretty straightforward, um, you know, family and football relationship comedy.
0: I know you said you did 13 episodes, but I think it only actually ran officially for four.
1: Well, here's what I remember for sure. I had a pay-or-play deal, and they paid me for 13. Now that I'm remembering, they didn't shoot it all. But back <laughs> in those days, I don't know if it still exists, but when you sign up for a pilot, it's kind of a one-sided deal. You, you uh, sign away your life... Uh, if they want you, but if they don't want you, they can cut you off instantly. So to protect you, and, and because you're you're legally taken out of the market once you sign a pilot deal. So the, the if they really want you at that time, the agent says, well, uh, all shows produce pay or play, meaning whether they they shoot them or not, they've got to pay you for them. Right. So that's what happened with that. That's why I remember it as thirteen because I got paid for thirteen. And there was a network executive at the time that I ran across. Subsequently, and uh, he always remembered that they had to pay me for 13 <laughs> so They don't like it.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
1: I mean, you know what they say, money talk, BS walk. <laughs> but
0: That's...
1: I don't remember being too sad when they canceled it, when they pulled it. Uh, I, never, I think they aired for I think we have made a few more than that, but it was not going well, and that it wasn't, you know, how, I had a lot to learn about that format. And it's too not a... I'm thinking now that my series is about to end, maybe that's something I would look to, because you look at the people on uh, Seinfeld with the Big Bang Theory, although those are lightning in a bottle, but they, they do extraordinarily well, and they don't work as hard as we work on a show like Maguire or Rizzoli and Isles. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, plus, the older I get, the more I like funny. <laughs> I try to be funny. And I try to be as funny on Rizzoli and Isles as we can, and it is a, you know, it's a dramedy, so it's not, you know, even though a homicide is the, is the frame that we hang every show on and homicide is no way is homicide funny right but you know in the process and going about our business we we try to be funny yeah you know rooted funny like 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 real cops frankly i, I spent a lot of time with real cops you know training for or studying what they do for various movies and tv shows and they're like anybody they're they're they all try to you know keep it light even though it's heavy
0: yeah uh, let's see. Next, then we've got uh, Tough Enough.
1: Tough Enough. Yeah, that was all right. I, I enjoyed that. I'm uh, sure I met Dennis Quaid. We were very, very good friends from that on. And uh, I got to spend a whole lot of time shoulder to shoulder with Warren Oates, who was just a wonderful guy and a wonderful actor. And he he been gone a long time, but uh, that was uh, that was kind of neat. I mean, I felt for Dennis because he had the he was the boxer, and it was uh, he had to box for. God, hours and hours every day, and we shot it in Fort Worth, and there were we were in the stockyards area, and there were so many flies that Warren Oates and I just used to sit there killing flies, you know, like hundreds of them, hundreds. Warren was a little bit sadistic; he would do it with a butane lighter. He'd let them land, and he'd torch them. <laughs> Oh, boy. You know, this is funny. I haven't thought about these things in so long. This is a good idea, Will. This is very interesting.
0: <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>
1: okay, go, go ahead. You drive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was curious. Uh, Warren Oates, obviously, notorious uh, man's man. Was he uh, still drinking relatively heavily on that film? or?
1: You know, once in a while. He wasn't supposed to at all. Right. He was supposed to. And, <clears throat> you know, wondered, what's the trouble with, with Warren and, and people like that is, you don't have a drink and then go learn your lines you know you have a drink and you start drinking yeah and it and it goes can go multiple days and and so there were there was a couple of days that uh, i didn't know that at the time i was young and wild and dennis and i were you know we would work all day then we'd plug in our electric guitars drink tequila and make music and it was a gas we were just having fun (laughs) and i didn't know at the time that Hey, Warren, come on, have a drink, was a really bad thing to say. <laughs> uh, I, although I do not think that Dennis Quaid and Reese McGill caused the ultimate demise of Warren Oates.
0: No, that was probably... <laughs> that was probably Sam Peckinpah. Very likely, or at least he probably contributed more to it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, Wilford Brimley was also on the film, and I, I'm always looking for a good Wilford Brimley anecdote if you've got one.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I've got several. I mean, that was where I met Wilford, and Wilford and I also became very good friends. Will is the kind of guy that if he's your friend, he's your friend forever. And if he's not your friend, just get out of his way. <laughs> he will take you down. But he's been uh, sort of blackballed in the business for a long time, and he had been making a living as a farrier, which is a blacksmith for those of you who don't know. And he had been back in Utah shoeing horses. And uh, the, the reason he had been blackballed was they were making a film in Mexico, and he was basically a wrangler. And uh, the director was an English fellow who kept calling people an effing C.
0: Mm.
1: I'm not going to say it even on a podcast, but <laughs> can I, can I say? Just feel free. I, it, it, uh, he, he would say, oh, stop it, you fucking cunt. <laughs> oh, look, get, listen to this fucking cunt. <laughs> and Wilford, who's left but was Mormon, and you know that the word is used in England much uh, more easily than it's used here, yeah. the C-word. So uh wilford told the guy he said if you call anybody a talking cunt again i'm gonna knock you down <laughs> oh, he said, this fucking <laughs> he, open-handed he slapped him but he slapped him hard enough that he went to the ground you know the guy had been riding horses and shoeing horses and you know wielding a blacksmith's hammer for years and so even an open-handed slap knocked this directly to the ground even though it was in mexico that was it for wilford in the movies <laughs> until uh, I think I'm not sure whether Electric Horseman he was resurrected by Robert Redford before or after semi-tough I mean before or after tough enough right but he uh, he came to that movie and uh, I remember the, one of the first times I met him we'd met each other at a, a read-through or something but he was coming out of the production office and uh, he'd just gotten his per diem and he had a he, he had his hat he always had a hat we'll always have a cowboy hat
0: yeah
1: And so I said, hey, man, how you doing? And uh, he said, he just picked his head up and showed it to me. He took his hand away, and there was, you know, folding money in it. And he said, I just went in there, sat down, wrote my name one time, and sweeped a week's wages off into my hat. (laughs) So that was, in those days, uh, per diem was given, you know, in cash, just folding money. Now I'm incorporated, and it, it becomes a check that goes through the process. But it used to be untaxed free money. I mean, the production... I don't know how they accounted for it, but we were never required to report it. So it was literally free money. And, um, and you know, you it didn't have to go through your agent for commission or anything. But I just remember thinking, that was pretty funny. I just swept a whole week's wages off into my hat. <laughs> so uh, on we went. And uh, he was really good. And, and we did another movie together. And uh, this is a really, truly Will Brimley story. <laughs> I was playing his son, and I was in a body cast. I was a rodeo rider, and I was in a body cast. with it. had one of my arms, my left arm, elevated to shoulder height and, and permanently set in plaster in an L with a big metal brace going down to the, the full body cast. And, I mean, it was very hard for me to move around. So we're doing a scene up on the back porch of the house, and uh, they want Wilford to look at a, a, a piece of tape instead of looking at me because I couldn't get into it with the lights and the flags and all the equipment. I couldn't get to where they wanted him looking so his look would be right and, you know, matching the various sizes and angles. And uh, they said, well, if you could just look for, look at this tape mark, and he said, uh, you better put him where I want, you want me to look because I'm going to be looking at him. <laughs> and, I, and they started to say, but don't you understand? And I said, forget it. And I got into the most awkward yoga contorted pose to get my eyes where Wilford needed to look because I absolutely knew 100% it would be the fastest way to get this shot because Wilford, he, he looks you right in the eyes and he tells you his version of the truth. And anything, any cheating on that for camera, he just won't do. And he maintains it's because he can't do it. But I think uh, really it was that it, it, he felt he had a, a good chance of being, making a, a bad performance if yeah. he didn't, do what he was comfortable. He was a very, very behavioral realism guy, and <laughs> now, he also another on that on that movie too. This is old day It was a pretty low budget movie uh, produced by Mary Steenburgen in her hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, okay. and kind of a story largely drawn on her memories of her father. <laughs> End of the line it was called. Okay, yeah, sure. And uh, and uh, <clears throat> so he couldn't stand these walkie talkies. We had it was low budget, so they borrowed stuff and they didn't have headsets then. So the squ- you know the squelch, the noise of the squawking of a walkie-talkie. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that was. They don't realize it, but the crew and the A.D.s are walking around. If you're an actor and you're sitting on the set, that thing on their waist is right in your ear, and he hated it. And so, I don't know, third or fourth day, he said, "You can make this movie two ways: either with me and without them walkie-talkies, or without me." period. And that was it. He said, I got a two-way ticket back to Utah. I don't care which option you choose. But if you're going to make this movie with me, you've got to turn them off.
0: <laughs>
1: well, uh, we did. They did, of course. And at the end of a very long, hot day in Little Rock, Arkansas, he looked up to the assistant director and said, well, Mr. A.D., did we get all the shots we were supposed to get today? And the fellow said, yes, sir, we did. And he, but his point was, see, we don't need those wonky-tockies. All around the perimeter were all the ADs and PAs who'd been running physically instead of walkie talking all day long. And if looks could feel, Will was dead ten times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that pretty much perpetuates everything I've heard about him, so that's good to know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he's, a, he's a good guy, but he's not necessarily user-friendly.
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. I guess the next one would be uh, As Summers Die.
1: Mm. Yeah, I love talking about that. i can got okay. to work
0: with Betty Davis. Absolutely, and yeah, that's actually uh, specifically why I picked
1: it. Yeah, well, she was fantastic, and it was troubled from the beginning because the factor uh, that was supposed to play the lead, James Caan, mm-hmm. couldn't, oh, surprise, couldn't pass the drug test. <laughs> they, they When they tested you, you know, I guess they still do, but it, it was much, you know, drug abuse or whatever you want to call it, recreational drugs I'm talking about. Sure. Uh, it was very widespread so they had to at the last minute they catch somebody else and uh, that was scott and glenn who i didn't know yet i've come to know very well we did w together he's a good guy good actor yeah and uh, i wanted to do it because that people would why did you do that movie at that point i just did every movie anybody, <laughs> do it? anybody would give me a talking part in a movie and pay me a little bit i was happy to do it but that one i really liked because it was a very it was a wildcat sexist old man a real character i really you know i'm i'm, I'm, I'm Fresh meat for me. And it also had Betty Davis in it, who was a pretty good actress. It had a good run. And uh, so they, when James Kahn fell out, the director said, I'm not doing it without Conn." So we didn't have a director for a while. And then uh, Sue Menger, the uh, super agent of the, of the day, oh, yeah. had a husband named Jean-Claude Tramont, a French film director, arguably, who agreed he would direct it. Oh, my God. He was just a, a whirling miasma of Galois smoke and, you know, the tip of a cigarette waving in your face all the time. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm still, I'm still, I'm pretty, you know, By that time I was comfortable on a movie set and, uh, you know, I I do my homework and I'm prepared and then I can pretty much handle whatever happens. So I'm just going on my merry way. And uh, I did, I was excited that uh, Betty Davis was going to be in it. I didn't have any scenes directly with her, but, uh, since this thing was in such disarray and the you know the star was gone and the director changed and this new director decided he had to fix the script and they told Betty Davis that they were going to change she said i've had this script for 3 months you will not change a <laughs> single word <laughs> and they didn't and she was the best thing in the movie cuz she knew her so everybody else was like i don't know what I'm talking about here <laughs> but she was great and there was we were in a little bitty town i think it was was that in Augusta, Georgia, outside of Augusta. I think so. And we were in, the, like, the only nicest, nice-ish restaurant where we, most of us uh, went for dinner on, you know, when there was not night shoots. <laughs> and I'm sitting in there with somebody else, and uh, there she is with the costumer who was a friend of hers from a long time ago. And she'd already had her stroke, but there she was over there with a big bowl of red wine and cigarette. <laughs> and uh, it was a time of uh, prominence of princess diana great lady die yeah and uh, so i thought you know what i have got to go say hello and i went over and i knelt on one knee and i said well the brits may have their lady die but we have our lady d and she mm-hmm. said oh young man sit down so i sat the, <laughs> you know sat and chatted with betty davis so that was full of good memories. Seven, <laughs> there's a horrifying memory from that one, too. You want a Stephen King moment? Sure. I'm this wildcat oil guy, and I'm exploring for uh, geological anomalies that might indicate, you know, a dome of oil. <laughs> so they had me, there was one of this, like, uh, the water was iced tea colored from uh, tree bark. And so this really weird river, you know, not dark tea, but kind of tea-ish colored. And uh, they had me in a period picture, the 50s. So they had this uh, little boat with an outboard motor, a period outboard motor. And I was supposed to, you know, I could handle boats. I'm a sailor, and I didn't have any problem with it. And they are telling me where I have to go and what I have to do and where the frame is and all that stuff and what line they want me to take to balance their frame or compose their frame. So I'm very much concentrated on things like that. Like I know I've got to go to that tree and, you know, that sandbar and all that stuff. Right. And the the, the motor was you know, it was not in great shape, but they got it started, but, so, finally, I'm, and, you know, when you're running an outboard motor, you're reaching behind you, holding the pillar of the motor, and looking forward, so it's going, and it was, a, it was kind of running rough, and I felt this weird tingling up my arm, and I thought, like, God, this this feels weird, and I looked back, and there had been a nest of bugs and it roaches hmm. inside the motor, and they were all now crawling up my arm, like, I mean, oh, hundreds, hundreds, and they went the really big ones, they were like you know, maybe an inch long, but they were they were just pouring out of this motor because it had gotten hot. And, I mean, that just, oh, that's, that just, it was a primal moment. And I, I went, ooh, like, uh, like um, Humphrey Bogart did when he was getting the leeches off him in the African Queen. <laughs> it was horrifying. and They said, what's wrong? You're getting off the line. And I said, fuck you. There's bugs all over me. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, man. I haven't thought... I haven't told these stories ever. Well, I used to tell that one because that was such a deep horror. I told that one for about a year. (laughs) And every time I work with a motor now, I make sure it's been run recently by somebody else.
0: (laughs) See, I knew I had an idea with this premise.
1: (laughs) Oh, i tell you what. It's very interesting because, you know, know, I do a lot of interviews, but it's mostly about Lincoln or Animal House or My Cousin Benny or, you know, some of the the very well-known films. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting angle. Ooh, you're interesting, Mr.
0: Harris. Oh, thank you very very much. Well, this next one is not necessarily as obscure, because I know a lot of people are aware of its existence, but I thought it it was a good one to ask about because of uh, David Bowie's uh, recent passing, uh, the the TV movie version of The Man Who Fell to Earth.
1: Uh, Yeah, you know, I remember so little about it. I think Lewis Smith played the man. And I think they were trying to, I think it was a backdoor series idea.
0: Ostensibly, yeah.
1: Yeah, but you know, I didn't have—I don't remember having uh, much challenging to do. I guess I was some sort of government guy, but it's not that I don't remember it. I just don't remember much about it, so it's probably unremarkable. And and usually, when they're unremarkable to make, they're unremarkable to watch. So I guess I could have taken it on that one, but you know, no. I'm just—you know—if what happens, do I get arrested if I don't use up all my cards?
0: No, you don't have to use them necessarily.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. Thank God. I (laughs) Oh, I was really nervous. I'm, I'm not dressed well enough to be arrested.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll see then. Let's go uh, the next one then. It would be uh, Out Cold.
1: Out Cold, I loved. Okay. I absolutely loved Out Cold. That was uh, John Lithgow and Terry Garr. And John and I go way back to my first play in New York. He played Laertes in a production of Hamlet and Shakespeare in the Park. And I was his understudy and we were both uh, men of music and we were both uh, men who didn't mind going to the bar and we would uh, quite a group you know you do a Shakespeare play uh, well mounted there's a lot of guys and so this group of uh, you know merry men would go to the Cedar Tavern downtown in New York City after rehearsals and we would have drinks and we would sing Irish songs and John just loved it he was he was a very good uh, song leader you know he would get it going and he did it with such exuberance so it was really great to work with him in that movie, and I played a terrible guy too. I was, I was, a, it, was a, a guy, it was a guy. The guy spoke like this. you know, based on some kind of New York guy that I fucking knew. You know, the pain in the ass guy. I was married to Terry Gar, but I treated her badly. And he was this big, tall, nebbish. We were butchers. Uh, on the side of our truck, it said, "You just can't beat our meat."
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, so uh, I was treating her badly, you know, running around on her and stuff like that. And uh, he had a crush on her and he liked her. And it was a, really it was directed by an English director named Matthew or Malcolm Mowbray. Malcolm Mowbray. Yes. And uh, he had done a movie about a, a pig with diarrhea. Was his credit. <laughs> and yeah. He had a very, very. I forget the title. It was
0: a, a, a private function with uh, Michael a Palin. Private function. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, he uh, he was very interesting to work with. But the film itself was was uh, fun because I really liked. I'd known Terry a long time, and of course I'd known John a long time. And uh, it was just a fun, juicy part. And uh, I I was frozen to death in our meat locker. <laughs> because uh, Terry walked in. It was, we planted that the, the little plunger handle would sometimes fall out on the floor. <laughs> and uh, so it, it had fallen out on the floor, and, and the door had locked on me. And Terry, who I'd been treating badly, my wife, came in. And I, I saw her, and I was freezing to death. I thought, oh, thank God, thank God. But she wouldn't do it. She let me freeze to death. She, you know, not by an act of anything she did, but by what she didn't do. She let me freeze to death. <laughs> so I, I, the rest of the movie, I would have to be there, and I, I it was a comedy. So I, when I fell dead, I fell on a bloodsticker that stuck to my forehead. <laughs> so uh, I would have had to do the rest of the movie because there were a lot of shots where they were moving my body around, trying to you know, hide it, and there were a lot of shoot days that would have been me acting like I was frozen to death with a French frozen to my head. <laughs> so they had they made a first time I ever had a full body dummy made of me and it was a very weird experience. And the guy was not terribly experienced so it didn't go all that well. It worked fine, but it, it all my body hair got stuck in the in the it was a kind of it wasn't plaster. It was maybe what plaster. Anyway they, they, I got stuck in there and they had to I could not get out and it had been a multi hour process and I was cramping and they had to cut, like mostly my underarm here because I had a t-shirt on, <laughs> they had to clip it like a little at a time for me to get out of there. Jeez. Oh, terrible. But <laughs> anyway, they wanted to do the camera test to see if the dummy was good enough to, to use as a, you know, in, for close-ups, so I wouldn't have to be there. So they got <laughs> a camera on, on a track, and they were tracking it back and forth to me dressed up as my character with the front sickle on my head, and the, the uh, anatomically correct dummy. That I was hoping, you know, would, would work. So they yeah. went back and forth, and back and forth, and I knew that at some time later, the, maybe the next day, the producers and director would watch this and decide if they could get away with that. So I <laughs> went back and forth on the, the dummy, onto me, back to the dummy. I leaned into the dummy's frame and whispered in the dummy's ear, "I hope you get it," <laughs> <laughs> meaning the part. And I'm happy to tell you, the dummy did get the part. <laughs> Somewhere is a perfectly real, absolutely realistic Bruce McGill head floating around somewhere.
0: <laughs> well, I guess that was also the film where you worked with your second uh, Quaid brother. Oh, yeah, Randy. Yeah. yeah
1: Randy was in it. And I knew, I knew Randy then, too, because of my relationship with Dennis. Yeah. So for Randy Randy was always a little aloof, is what I felt. Yeah. And I've talked to him about with Dennis, and Dennis said, oh, he's really deep. <laughs> so I said, okay, he's deep, he's aloof. <laughs> whatever and i played golf randy sometimes and then of course you know what he's known for now is, i never saw that coming
0: i get the impression very few people did
1: no no i don't know i don't I don't see the guy anymore i guess i guess nobody around here does <laughs> uh good actor though you know he was really good as johnson very good oh yeah but I, I don't know what i don't know what happened there i really don't dennis and i were very close but randy and i just were acquaintances
0: okay uh, let's see. The next we've got, uh, play nice.
1: I'll do the forget about it card on that one. <laughs> I, I want to play. I just want to play your games, and if there's any that I, I, you know, I don't have much recollection of it. And it, it, it was, uh, yeah. What, what's the name of my first card? We're
0: Oh,
1: on the the, uh, the just it? say no. Just say no. Will,
0: <laughs> are you listening? I am. No, no. <laughs> and thus we move on. <laughs> cool power but now it's gone <laughs> so next up would be uh, Live Shot
1: Live Shot really liked that one that was starting to go better for my character too <laughs> it, was a, it was a news station and I was a, I think the sports editor or something no station manager yeah station manager Another authority figure in the long line of Bruce McGill authority figures, <laughs> and uh, it, I liked it a lot. I really I liked uh, the premise. I liked that it. it shot near my house at the time. I lived over on the west side, and it was in a warehouse kind of studio, maybe ten minutes from home. So I loved that. <laughs> and it was a steady job. It was a you know I can always forget about that because I always say that and Isles is the first series that went that I signed on when they they had a you know all shows produced deal with me. And I always forget about live shot because on MacGyver I didn't. I wouldn't sign up because I wanted to keep free to do movies. I don't know if that was a mistake or not, but you know here I am. So I guess it wasn't a, a fatal mistake <laughs> if it was. But that one was. Uh, they, their problem with that show. It was really good too. It was a, a newsroom and live shot, of course, with those trucks with the satellites that you see, satellite antennas that you see all over, going to any newsworthy event or some not newsworthy events, in my opinion. But it was, so we had those guys out there in the field and then we were back at the station and it was a really cool, if difficult to shoot on set because there was a lot of interior glass walls that would, you know, you could use them, you had had to watch the reflections. Anytime you see a set that's a lot of glass, it is going to be a chore to make sure that you don't see reflections of camera and crew. Yeah. But that one, the the fatal flaw there was that there was a romantic uh, leading lady and leading man and they just, they didn't really have chemistry. And it, it, it was just sort of flat, and uh, and uh, but they were they were still pretty darn good, and, and I liked the part a lot. Joe Vitale, was his name. and I got you know chomped an unlit cigar, and it's <laughs> a real character, and I was really, really into it. And they were they were going to shift the uh, focus of the show away from the the leading lady and leading man that weren't that hot together, and make it more uh, make me like a Lou Grant character. Okay, yeah. and you know a. a a crusty old news guy and then, then I would have been uh, you know would have been a really good part for me but instead of that
0: they pulled the plug <laughs> oh well can't win them all
1: hey you know what this is really good to talk about now because I'm staring down the barrel of, of the last season of my only long-running series and uh, uh you know I'll have to be back out there in the marketplace again if I if I want to work that's true good to remind me that all these things I did every time I get a job the job will it's just that this one has taken seven years to end.
0: It's a pretty good run, though. you got to admit that.
1: Yeah, it's a good run. And you know what, I really, I, my, my joke line to people is, well, I'll never work again again.
0: <laughs> because
1: I always have, and I, as long as I want to and can remember lines, I'm sure I'll get something. <laughs> well,
0: let's see. The next one is ground control. This is ground
1: control to Major Tom.
0: The Bowie theme going on this today. <laughs> is,
1: this was about a bad oh boy uh, by David. He was amazing. Yeah, oh, yeah. This was a. It wasn't ground control in the space sense. It was the ground control, the air traffic controllers. Wow. And it was a little film, and uh, the director for some reason quit or they fired him, and then they didn't have a director, so Kiefer Sutherland, who was in it, uh, sort of took over as director but it was sort of secret because he wasn't in the DGA at the time. <laughs> I think he has become, but it, it, or, or he didn't want people to know he was doing, I don't know what, I don't know, maybe he engineered the de- demise of the director. <laughs> but it was actually pretty good. It was a pretty good film because that's a world we all, you know, not all of us, but a very high percentage of us have flown on commercial airlines, but not many people get to go behind the scenes and see what's going on. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. And the thing that was most interesting to me is the, how old, the equipment they were using. It was World War Two era radar <laughs> that they were using. Most of the even even then big markets. So uh, and you know still I think it's not as far along as it might be in you know air traffic control technology. Yeah. I don't know what they're using now. But we saw I saw a lot of interesting things there and I, they're great. They're extraordinary people and to be able to do that it's all it's time and space problems. It's sort of like a you have to have a, a, a knack for it or a skill for it or a feel for it but a lot of it is anticipating if these things continue to happen what will happen you know 30 minutes down the road yeah very interesting I, I, and I think it was a pretty good movie and I I loved Kiefer Kiefer was a he's a really good guy and a really good actor and and actually he was a very good director
0: you know I, I, looking at the cast of that film I mean, there's a lot of interesting people who were in it like uh Kirstie Swanson Kelly McGillis Margaret Cho but uh, I,
1: uh, yeah, that's right.
0: I guess well, apparently Steve Sachs played the co-pilot of a well, plane anyway. Of the plane.
1: Well, I wouldn't have seen him because I was in the, in the uh, traffic control. Oh, that that's true,
0: involved, yeah. You know? <laughs> so I didn't see anything in the airplane stuff.
1: But I know Kelly McGillis, she, she was a piece of work, man. I don't think she ever really liked acting. She pretended to, but I think she was. You know, if you're not cut out for it, it's probably miserable and terrifying. <laughs> if you know, you know, some people they can't even stand up on stage and accept an award. Yeah. They get so nervous. But she, we were supposed to finish shooting uh, in this, uh, you know, most of it we did in a one of those cheap warehouse sound stages. But then we had to do some real stuff out of the, I think, the Ontario Airport outside of L.A. And she, she went back to Florida where she lived, and she was supposed to come back to finish her role, and she didn't. <laughs> she flat didn't, She just didn't come back. And uh, I just thought, wow, man, that is that is really burning your bridge. I mean, it wasn't a big film, it wasn't a studio film, but still. And, you know, we, we can always do something to, you know, I think I took her lines because she was, we split up her lines and we just rewrote it a little bit and we dealt with it. But I was just so uh, uh, surprised, and the English would say gobsmacked, that, a, that an actor, a principal actor, of some stature at that time would do that would just decide not to come back and not come back I, that's the only time in my whole career of you know well over a hundred projects that i've ever seen that
0: wow that's it's kind yeah, of nuts
1: you, you yeah you don't see her you don't see her working anymore i just don't think she liked it yeah it's, it's sort of it sort of happened to her and uh, you know bye bye to her good luck hope she's happy
0: <laughs> uh let's see next one i I have no end of curiosity about the experience. Uh, inside the Osmonds.
1: Oh, wonderful experience. Excellent. Really inter- interesting experience, except for the fact that it was shot in Winnipeg, Ontario, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, <laughs> in winter. Ah. I never experienced cold. Here's the first anecdote that I tell about that one. When people were on a set somewhere and it's cold, I go, no, it's not. <laughs> it ain't cold. In Winnipeg, one morning, and this, this was a really extraordinary day because it was the first time all of the Osmonds, and that, that means all of them, not just the ones we know, but the whole family, <laughs> and mom, and dad, were all in this theater in, in uh, Winnipeg on the same day. It was extraordinary, just to have, they hadn't, some of them hadn't seen each other in 10 years. Wow. So there was all their, their to-ing and froing that had to be done. But it was you know, a big deal for everybody. It was so cold that day, and it was cold. When I got there, it was so free, I'd never felt anything like it. And I'd been told on the airplane about a good place to have dinner close to my hotel. And I thought, oh, well, that's great! I can't wait because I love going on location and having dinner. I love it. <laughs> so, I got in my parka. My wife is Canadian, and she said, "You don't have anything that's going to help you in Canada." So we went and bought a, I think, Burlington Coat Factory parka. So I put it on and I go outside and I walk about hundred yards and I go, "I don't believe I'm this hungry. I can't, I can't survive in this." But I looked back and the hotel was at least as far as the restaurant was, so I continued got into the restaurant and said, oh, man, it's cold. And she looked at me like I was nuts. She said, this isn't cold. And I went, well, okay, I'm from Texas. Sorry. So I, now, that was that was before they were admitting it was cold. And then, so at that point, every morning, I would first turn on the weather to see what, what was I dealing with out there. And because I now had somewhat of a frame of reference of what 25 below felt like. So this one morning, it was the morning of the day that we were working with all the Osmons on stage together for the first time in 17 years, I think, something like that. Wow. And uh, the TV was not on the, it wasn't even the weather channel, it was CNN. And it. it I, I clicked on the remote and uh, it came on and it said, I quote, an unseasonably cold mass of Arctic air has seized Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada today, where the temperature is 58 degrees below zero. To give you some sense of perspective, the temperature on the surface of the moon is 63 below. And now a word from Coca-Cola. And I went, <laughs> it's as cold as the moon out there. It was within five degrees of the chill, but still five degrees of the temperature of the moon, which has no atmosphere. I'm thinking, oh my, I mean, you literally, you could spit... If you could, you know, find any saliva. And it would be BBs. It would freeze on the way to the ground if you spit on the ground. So, you know, I went around spitting until I was dry mouth. No, I didn't. It. Cool. But it was so cold. And because we had all these Osmonds and we were shooting in this theater, my dressing room was further away than it had ever been from the set because they were putting all the Osmonds dressing rooms close. Yeah. So, man, I'm telling you what, it, I froze my soft palate. I froze the, the few, first few layers of skin on the roof of my mouth. That's how cold that is. Wow! So I remember that well. Also, it was uh, it was pretty good, and, and uh, um, meeting that all those folks and, and Papa Osmond. He was funny. He didn't have a hair on his head, and I had a full head of hair. <laughs> and he came over when we met he, met each other. and He's looking at me weird, and I realized, oh my God! And he's looking at my hair, and maybe he's thinking that's wrong. And he goes, "I'm glad about the hair." <laughs> so he was glad that they didn't shave my head. Okay. But that was fun. That was that was a that was a pretty well made deal. I like. I actually like. Doing it, and I, I liked watching it.
0: Excellent. Uh, let's see. Then next we've got uh, a, a pilot which no one probably has even seen, but the, the cast made it worth asking about. I thought uh, Area Fifty Seven.
1: Oh, much fun, <laughs> much fun. Really wish that had gone. It was supposed to be Area Fifty One, which is of course the, uh, the uh, UFO hangar outside of Roswell, New Mexico. Right. That everybody. All uh, I don't know if you watch Ancient Aliens. But it's, that's what that made. of course we had to change that because that's classified sure. that's a number for crying out now so we had to be Area 57 <laughs> and it was a, a, a half hour comedy and by then I thought, golly the, these comedy people, are, they're doing they don't work as hard, and they get paid a lot more, I want to do a comedy <laughs> and uh, it was a really fun character and the, the cast was uh, Jane Lynch was my second in command or my, my attaché I guess, <laughs> I was like a, a, a burned out, shell shocked Vietnam era general and it uh, was director Dean Pariseau who was, who's oh, yeah. done a really funny outer space movie. So I, I was, I really was excited about that one. I tell you what, what I really remember about that, besides the, the fact that we didn't do anymore, <laughs> but also Paul, DeWey Herman, Paul Rubens was in it.
0: Absolutely, yeah, he was the alien. <laughs> he, 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 he sure,
1: he sure is. <laughs> exactly, pretty sharp. He's a pretty sharp guy. But it was the beginning of the. Uh, the, when you sign up for the network you know they're, they're all protecting themselves legally yeah. and we were we were with a network and they had to have this sexual harassment meeting where we did the table read and then they had to have this lawyer in-house lawyer come in and and i mean talk to us and you had to sign this stuff and it was so restrictive and so stupid and so uh, the antithesis of what you do when you're trying to make things funny and you need to feel free to think up whatever you want you won't use it if it's off color but you can't you can't put that kind of a muzzle on, you know, guys trying to come up with funny stuff. Yeah. And Dean Parasel and I were so, we were the only ones that were, we were absolutely outraged and, and I won't say furious. I mean, we, I signed it because I wanted the job, but we just thought it was so counterproductive and so stupid and would not in any way stop the kind of things they were trying to stop. And uh, but, but I remember that, uh, that's, that's still around now, but it's not as, you know, when they first institute something like that, they come at you with a vengeance. Anyway, I remember mostly that. And the flying cow, I remember the flying cow, that was funny.
0: (laughs) What's the context of that for anyone who hasn't seen it, which is probably most people? Um, They were,
1: uh, you know, most people, they uh, were wondering whether these cows had been affected by alien activity, (laughs) so they had to airlift one of them in a a sling under a a helicopter, and it, you know, it, it looked, it wasn't a real cow, the one they actually lifted was a, you know, a Mannequin of a cow, but it was so realistic looking, and the, you know, on the ground there was a real cow that looked exactly like the fake cow. <laughs> so that just is one of those things that sticks in my mind of a, a a cow hung on a in some sort of a hammock affair underneath a military helicopter. <laughs>
0: That's
1: just one of those images that you don't forget.
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. Then we've got uh, humble pie.
1: Humble pie. I have no recollection of it. Must have been shot under another title.
0: Uh, let me see. I can actually check to see if there was an alternate I title. Do, I could do
1: one and done there, because I really don't... Uh, the fact that I don't remember it is, a, is commentary.
0: I suppose that's true, yeah. If you want to do that, that's fine.
1: Well, if you can tell me anything about it, I mean, I, it, it, I'm scratching my head. I don't remember it at all.
0: Uh, well, it's I about, uh, a, uh... Tracy Orbison is a wide target. When he sets out to pursue his dream of acting, a grocery clerk finds an assortment of people uh, who uh, waiting to dash his dreams. So a 400-pound four, oh, guy. Yes. yes,
1: yes, yes. I do remember that. One and done. Fair enough. <laughs> one and done. The, the one is, it was, uh, I think it was shot in Salt Lake City, Utah.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, and it was an, also, you know, an actor like me, a character guy, sometimes I am in for two days or – or something, you know, and, I, and I, I, I zip in, do the scene, and zip out. And I think that's probably the case where they uh, they change the title, which happens. Okay. But one and done. I just want to use all – I want to play the game right, man. Oh, I understand. One and done. One <laughs> and done, damn it, really?
0: <laughs> Well, the last one would be uh, For Greater Glory, the true story of Christiana. Uh,
1: a very small part. Uh, like the guy, like the project. It shot a lot in Mexico. It was Andy Garcia, and I played uh, the then president. I don't remember which president it was. Coolidge, I guess?
0: I believe it was Coolidge, yeah.
1: It was Coolidge, yeah. So uh, nothing remarkable to say about it except it – oh, yeah, here's something remarkable to say about it. Okay. It, I shot that in the, between the first and second season of Rizzoli and Isles. Okay. And Rizzoli and Isles is shot under an AFTRA contract, and all my health insurance, all my career has been SAG because mostly I did film work, you know, feature films. Right. So I thought I've got to keep my film life alive. So I did a bunch of independent films. This was the biggest of them, and of the six I did, it's the only one that ever got released. The so <laughs> there's, a, there's so so for that, Cristiano was good. <laughs> oh And also because of the, the, the when I was reading up on Calvin Coolidge, he was uh, you know taciturn to say the least. He didn't talk much and wasn't wasn't fond of being you know poked and prodded by the press. And uh, so. In this one incident, he was at an event, and the press was all lined up. They had better control of him at the time. <laughs> and uh, this one reporter said another day, said, I'll bet you two bucks that he doesn't say a word to me. Well, I bet he doesn't say one word to me tonight. <laughs> or two I bet he doesn't say two words to me tonight. And, on his, and Coolidge heard it. And on the way out, Coolidge walked up to the guy and said, you lose.
0: <laughs> 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 it's pretty good. Well, I mean, now technically... That's what they call it, Silent cow. <laughs> well, oh, so that was the last one, and technically you didn't use the switcher card, but to, to extend it just slightly, let me just make an observation. That it's funny that in 2012, not only did you play Coolidge, but it's the same year that Lincoln came out, and it's also the same year that FDR, American Badass, came out. So you were very presidential <laughs> that year.
1: <laughs> I was very presidential. Well, you know, once again, uh, authority figures in power. Every movie needs a grown-up, and now that at this stage of my life, that's all I have left to play are grown-ups. <laughs> I guess I can get to become a, twice a child and lose my marbles and be a, a you know childlike simpleton old man. <laughs> that's nothing to look forward to, is it? Not particularly. Anyway, I'll tell you what. We're still at it. Have no desire to quit. I'm excited about going to work tomorrow, and uh, you know I, I really enjoyed the Brazilian Isles experience. And uh, since we're you know every every single day is clicking off one to where we finish we're doing 13 and out and i'm just going to squeeze it like a orange and get all the sweet juice out of every day
0: <laughs> excellent well i appreciate you taking the time especially in the midst of all this to uh to do this for uh, me
1: oh no, it's funny it's very interesting and I, and uh, as ever it, it's always a pleasure talking to you will you hear that listeners will the real deal and this <laughs> is a really interesting way to drive around my memory in, in areas i mean most of those stories i have never told I mean, it, nobody asked about those movies. Yes! A good angle.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Cool. Well, thank you
1: so much, Bruce. <laughs> and any time you want to talk about my real career, feel free.
0: <laughs> real is relative. Come on. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I'm pleasing. You know, it's, it's very interesting, actually. You know, actors, they don't mind talking about themselves, most of them.
0: That's true. I found that to be true.
1: Anyway, I hope you find a good and lasting audience, and good luck in all your stuff.
0: Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Obscurity Knox, and now you're not. Look for us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just remember on Twitter, Knox is spelled K-N-O-X, and we're not bitter about that. No, really, we're not. Also, for a slightly more detailed look into the projects covered by this week's guest, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. Thanks for checking us out, and don't be afraid to check us out again. If you keep listening, we'll keep digging for more obscurities. See you next time.